0: Father, we come to you right now. I'm thankful that you are, in fact, on the throne, Lord. The universe works uh, in the way that you designed it to work, Father. You're in control. You're orchestrating the events of uh, not just my life or our lives here in this room, but everybody's life, Father, regardless of if they submit to you or not, uh, to bring about a desired end. And so I pray in the meantime, as we work through the imperfections that We see in this life, Father, as we deal and process through um, failed expectations, dashed hopes that uh, we would be reminded that you're with us and one of your great gifts is that you've provided a community to walk with us through life, Father. Help us not to uh, spurn your gift, Lord, as we approach your word. Be with us. Give us clarity and insight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Man, well, um, I grew up, uh, I was born in uh, 84, uh, so uh, video games and sports raised me. Well, I had my mom and my dad at home, they, they helped too, but most of my time was spent video games and sports. One of the things that I loved, the things that gripped me early on, um, was this one button that I had on my Nintendo um, it was called the pause button, right? And so what would take place is you would play these games. Things would get really hard. You would get hungry. Or just some tragedy would take place. And so what you could do is you could hit the pause button, and it would pause things. It would stop time, and you could get up, do what you needed to do, take care of things, and come back and unpause it and pick up right where you left off. So you found it, Right? All right? So you found yourself in a place where things were unmanageable and the pause button just lets you step back, catch your breath, do what you needed to do, and then insert yourself right back where you messed up. There was a, another button on the front called the reset button. And this is if you really, really messed up, you just hit that and start over, right? If only life were that easy. Here's the frustrating thing about life or the thing that you and I tend to lament a whole bunch is that in life we find ourselves constantly fighting. Life is full of disappointments and frustrations. Life is full of us facing things that are unmanageable and there is no pause button. The world keeps on going. Relationships sour Family dies, jobs are lost, divorce takes place, wicked prosper, injustice remains, depression sets in, medicine doesn't work. But do you know what keeps going? Life, your duties, your obligations, bills still have to be paid. Your kids still have to be fed, and they'll let you know it. Laundry still has to be done. Work has to be done, and there's no pause button. There's no way to step back. Obligations still exist, and so if you've lived any amount of time, you're confident and you know that life seems like this constant fight, that we live in a world where imperfections are This world is nothing like we thought that it would be. Our expectations constantly come up short. We spend all of our time fighting what what, what it seems like. It seems like some days we come home and we're glad that we accomplished all that we set out to do. But then there are certain days where we come home and we're just rejoicing in the fact that we didn't drown. That We kept our head above water. It's an exhausting fight. That leaves us physically fatigued, mentally anxious, especially as we think about both the good and bad times, right? The good times that are there, it seems like that they leave too quick and the bad times seem like they'll last forever. leaves us physically fatigued, mentally anxious, and emotionally guarded. And in the midst of all of this, This intense fight that life is, there's a problem that we run into. And do you know what that is? Do you know the only thing that's worse than an intense fight? An incorrect fight. Fighting against the wrong thing. Because you spend all your energy fighting against the wrong guy to only to find out that there's somebody that has much more strength and you still have to fight them too. So if you lose strength before you fight the right person, do you know what takes place? You lose. And it's one thing to lose a game, but it's another thing to lose in this game of life. There's collateral damage. There's children that are depending on your marriage to remain. There are friends that are depending on your emotional health and well-being. There's people that are dependent on you. So one thing that we can't afford to do is we can't afford to be in the wrong fight. Life is a fight, and the world keeps turning. There is no pause button. So what we want to do and spend our time on today is to talk about this right fight talk about, right, before we get into strategies of what it is that we need to do, how we can live our best life now, the first thing that we have to do is make sure that if we're fighting, we're fighting the right opponent. So there's three things that I want to do in our time here today. The very first one is this. I want to acknowledge what the right fight is. I think so many times we get so consumed in the imperfections that remain in this life that we can ignore what is our real problem. Two, I want to tell us something that we have to avoid at all costs. And then lastly, I just want to direct us to action. So if you would turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes um, chapter four, and we're going to spend our time in the fourth chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter four. Here, two words that you can write down that will help you to grasp context of where we are in the book. Chapters 1 through 3 are all about these two words. Accept imperfection. Accept imperfection. Your life is going to be hell if you don't learn how to accept the fact that life on earth oftentimes feels like hell the knowledge that we hope that will fix life, the knowledge that we hope will bring solutions to our problems only adds to our sorrow. The pleasure that we think, that we hope would provide us enjoyment in the midst of a frustrating life only makes us more empty. The diligence that we work with to try to secure a future for us and for those that we're responsible for, if we think out to the future and look out, far enough, that diligence doesn't bring us delight. It only brings us despair at the thought that one day somebody is going to squander all that I worked hard for. Ecclesiastes one through three basically helps us see this. Nothing in life will be everything that you thought it would be. We live in an imperfect world. Life cannot be manipulated. You don't have the tools to make life turn out exactly how you thought it would be. And the quicker that you realize that you have to accept imperfection, the better that it will be for you. Do you know the remedy to imperfection in this world that the Bible offers? Revelation. Jesus coming back to set things right one day. It's certain and it's coming, but it's not here yet. We are going to have to wait for it. Things are going to fall apart. Injustice is going to be as certain as the next sunrise. But it's not to make us complacent and lazy. It's meant to sober us up so that we go through life with a sense of clarity. The goal is to free us from a fight that we could never win. If your goal in this life is to create a utopia, a perfect world where nothing goes wrong, perfect relationships where there is no danger that things will mess up, you'll spend your whole life fighting only to find out that you fought the wrong fight. You don't have the tools to cure every imperfection in the world, and that's not meant to make you lazy. It's meant to give you hope in the midst of imperfections. It's not meant to make you lazy because there will be imperfections. So here's the main point that that I want to share and then we're going to walk through this text. The, The main point, the big point is this. Your primary fight, your largest fight, your most important fight is against isolation, not imperfection. Your biggest fight is against isolation and not imperfection. So the very first thing that we have to do is we have to acknowledge the isolation that exists. We have to turn our gaze for a moment from off of the imperfections that exist in the world. Because at the end of the day, Jesus has promised that he will fix those things one day. That. Is his big fight. So we have to turn our eyes from that and we have to spend time and look at something that is within our control here in this world. The very first thing we have to do is acknowledge isolation. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting at verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 8 and it says this. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. Listen. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end in all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never ever asks for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. What he does right here is he draws our minds to look and says, hey, there's something in this world that is actually worse than the imperfections that consume our lives. And it's isolation in the midst of imperfections. And he draws our minds to see that, this danger, over and over. In verse 1, you'll see it twice, has no other. Verse 7 and 8, verse 9, 10, 11, 11 and 12, he's constantly contrasting. The big point in all of this is isolation. We have to acknowledge it and see that it's a big danger not just in this book but throughout the whole bible isolation is the first thing that's addressed as being wrong with man in the bible before sin comes into the world god looks at man by himself and god says you being by yourself is not going to be good at all Even as God creates man and he's morally perfect, Adam comes on to the scene to a world that has no imperfections and God still looks down at him and says, isolation is a problem. Do you know that even if you could make your world perfect the way that you would like it, isolation would still be a problem for you? There's something bigger that we have to address. Isolation has always been one of the greatest adversaries of mankind. YouTube makes a killing off of this, uh, off of people uh, who have an opinion of themselves and or their voices that record themselves and broadcast it only to go viral and to find out Oh, it's not because I'm that good. It's because I'm that bad. And people laugh at me and they say, I can't believe that they didn't have anybody to tell them. (laughs) You can't sing. (laughs) Satan does his best work when he isolates us. We have to acknowledge isolation as a danger. But unless it's just kind of thrown out as this blanket statement and we flatten it and tend to think that I'm not isolated because I have a bunch of friends. What he does here is he goes through and he gives us. No, no listen. Isolation comes in all shapes and sizes. There's a diversity to it. There are many paths to get to this same end goal, and so we are going to spend time and go through three of those. The very first one that we see in verses one through three is this: the castaway, the castaway. Yeah, think of that Tom Hanks movie where he's lost at sea and what takes place is um, there's nobody there. So he goes through all this hard time. He gets a ball and draws a face on it and calls it. Wilson, right? Just because he's trying to have somebody there with him. And the movie is spent just chronicling the lonely journey of this man. So look here with me at verse 1. It says this, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. So he brings back up the injustice that we talked through last week. But what he doesn't do is spend his time discussing the hope that we have that one day God's going to set things right. He doesn't spend time and talk about how whack that it is that it's still here. He doesn't spend his time on these intellectual debates or philosophizing about it all, but he spends his time on something a little more human. And he says this, listen, in the midst of all the imperfections that are here in this world, the end of verse one, behold, Here's the sad reality. The tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. What he brings up is the reality that there are real people that find themselves in a real pain that's been done to them by somebody else crying real tears and their tears hit the floor because there's nobody to catch them. It's one thing to cry. It's another thing to cry and to see every one of your tears hit the floor because there's nobody around. And what he says is, that's a sadder reality. That is a worse evil than the injustice that was done to them. Go on to verse 2, or the end of verse 1. And on the side of the oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. What he goes on and says is, this. It's not just that there's a group of folks that are isolated in the midst of injustice. This is worse than Castaway. Tom Hanks didn't have anybody because they all thought that he was dead. What he's saying here is no, 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 no. There's people that actually have power to comfort these people that are isolated, but they're preoccupied. There's something else that goes on. It's within their power, maybe not to stop what is going on, but at least to provide comfort. And they're lonely. They fail to provide it. They may overlook the individuals that are actually involved in this deep pain caused by isolation plus oppression, but they don't have the time or capacity to do anything about it and this is a pain that can't really be put into words look at the conclusion that he comes to he says this and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive he says man it's better that somebody was dead than that they felt this Kind of pain, verse three, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He takes it a step further. It's not just that folks that are dead are better, but people that never even had a chance to come into this world are better off because they don't have to witness this great evil. A philosopher by the name of William James writes this quote, and he says this. If no one turned around when we entered, answered when we spoke, or minded what we did, but if every person that we met cut us dead and acted as if we were non-existent things, a kind of rage, or impotent despair would before long well up in us from which the cruelest bodily torture would be a relief. What he says is that if you found yourself in this place where it 's not just that you were lonely because there was nobody around but you were lonely because you were in the midst of a group and nobody responded at all to any of the hurt that you're in what he was what he says is that you would long to instead of have that to have the cruelest form of bodily Torture. The author sits here and writes and says, Yo, this is a fate worse than death. What he does right here, what's done, is this sense of loneliness helps to provide perspective and. Clarity, or it gives you a new kind of outlook on death. To where somebody that finds themselves here would say, "You know, this is worse than death." There's been plenty of times in the course of the past year that, as I've looked at just the pain and the frustration that's gone on in our world, as much as I mourn the loss of loved ones that I've had, there's sometimes that I can sit back and I can thank God. I'm glad that my brother didn't have to to see this. One of the things that that should help us to do as Christians or as a church, knowing the deep pain and angst that can come from this type of loneliness, is to look at people that may find themselves having thoughts of suicide, or even those that may have had thoughts are actually gone through with an abortion, not just as murderers or folks that long for the convenience of life, but those that may have been so frustrated with what has gone on in the world that out of, and hear this, a misguided and a misapplied sense of compassion said to themselves, I can't imagine bringing somebody else into all of this. It's not a justification for that. That's not what I'm trying to do here. We still do see that as, as sin in the eyes of our Lord. But what it means for us is that we spend more time trying to come alongside and to make sure that those tears don't hit the ground. We spend less time throwing intellectual bombs against an ideology, and we spend our time looking for individuals that actually find themselves in a place like this. We desperately want to be a church where tears can and do fall freely, but the floor remains dry because there's People here to catch those tears. And so if you are here and you are in a place where any of those things applied or, or depression is just set in in a very, very real way. I just want you to know that we are well aware that you're here. And we don't want you to feel like you have to be here in this place. I guarantee you there are people here in this room, that don't want you to feel like a caster. And we want to create a place where you can feel that. So if you're there and you feel that and you feel like you don't have anybody that you can talk to about those things, come up and talk to me And I would love to con- connect you with friends that I have here in this room that can help with that. He doesn't just stop there, though. As we think of loneliness, we tend to think of those that don't have any option, but I think what's, a bigger threat is not those that are cast away, because at the end of the day, their isolation could be undone if somebody just went and took some 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 time with them. What's worse is these next two that he's gonna talk through, because they contribute to the very isolation that they face. So the first one was was a castaway. The next one is this a coveter. Look here at verse four. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. It's not as explicit here, but what takes place is that envy leads to isolation in a very unique way. Envy leads to isolation because instead of rejoicing in the gifts that God has provided with people that are all around you that may have what you don't have, you spend your time trying to compete with them. So he goes so far and says, no, no, look, 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 here's what lies at the heart of hard work in a general sense. People see somebody with something that they want and they don't have. And so, you know what they do? They work hard for. it. Capitalism is built off of that. Right. It's a system that incentivizes you being able to compete with somebody and beat them. And if you do, if you achieve success and stand in a class all by yourself, you get rewarded for that. In a very practical way, I saw this play out um, at my birthday a few months ago we had a bunch of guys come over to my house um, and there's a group of guys here in this church uh that uh I've been in the gym with for the past year and a half you see Kurt right here with the two little shirt on uh Paul there in the back uh LB and a few other folks well well Paul Paul comes in uh from a pool party Um, and so Paul comes in and he has a tank top on. Um, and so folks like, man, Paul's got a tank top, man, Paul's been in the gym, man. And so you see all of this stuff. And do you know what takes place for the rest of that month? All of the rest of the guys that had missed days in the gym and had come in and out, they were in there faithful and strong. (laughs) Why? Because they looked at him, they saw what he had and they say, I want that. And at the end of the day, it was their this drive to I've got to win, but all right, here's how things go bad, and here's how you're driven to isolation by that. A few weeks later, a guy who shall remain nameless gets hurt in the gym, so he can't lift. Do you know what the rest of the guys do? They rejoice in the fact that he's hurt because now they can get ahead of him. James 3 says that where you have envy, there you have every evil practice. Here's what takes place. When envy settles in our hearts, instead of lifting up people when they're down, if we're envious of them, then we actually on the inside rejoice when they don't do as good of a job because now we can accomplish what it is that we really want. And so this is somebody that's driven to isolation, not because there's nobody around, but because he finds himself or she finds herself in competition with everybody that is around that God has provided to them for a good gift. Yeah, at the end of verse four, he goes on and says this. "Yo, It's vanity. It's striving after the wind. You're not going to catch it. It's pointless. Why is it pointless? Because here's the irrationality of envy. Here's what takes place. Envy, it's as dangerous as it is easy. It's irrational. And do you know what you never do? You never look at somebody, just one person and say, I wish that I could trade my whole life with their whole life. What you do is you take a bunch of people and you say, I wish that I could have their spouse, their job, his platform, their car, their kids, their house, and you treat it like this buffet line. I'm going to take a little bit of this and this and this, and you stack it up, and in our minds, we create this, this impossible life that nobody can have, and we spend all of our time trying to work for all of these things. And it's vanity because it's impossible. It's as possible to get as it is you trying to grasp a a handful of wind. You can't get it. And look, even if you could get it, death is always a thief of that kind of a joy. If you could get it, death which is coming, will rob you of that. Envy is senseless, but driven by it, it makes us people that aren't just isolated because we don't have anybody around, but we're isolated and we work hard for that isolation. How do you know if that's you? Here's a very, very quick test. As you sit back and you think on your life, do you ever get to a point in your your life where you feel like I'm a total failure? What makes you say that? It's one thing to say that based on, ah, there's a standard that God has called me to live up to and I failed to meet that standard. I desperately need Jesus to meet me at the point of my failure, it's another thing entirely to think I'm a failure based off of comparisons that I make with somebody else. Because you know what that does? It's not you accepting the lot in life that God gave you. There are certain things that we have in our lives that we can't change. So regardless of how hard that we work, there's a platform... There is a ceiling to what it is that we can do in life. And I don't want to crush anybody's dreams, but hear me when I say you actually can't be anything that you want to be. That is actually not true. There are certain things that God has provided to all of us or failed to provide for us that we can't be. I desperately wanted to be an R&B singer as I grew up, but my lot in life was that I just don't have that kind of a voice. Amen. I'll refrain from saying all this stuff that Trip can't be, but <laughs> y'all get the point that I'm making. Right? There are those that are isolated because... They're castaways. And if you feel like that, I want you to know that there's not a better place that you could have been this morning. There are those that are isolated in life because they covet. You spend all of your time desperately wanting in competition, aiming for something that you'll never get, but all the while estranging yourself. And then lastly, captive. Captive. There are those in life that um, their judgment is clouded and they're so consumed by a desire for more that they never sit back and ask themselves why. Verse 7, um, and I'll be brief with this when he says this. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, right? Some, some, uh, Somebody else that's all alone either a son or a brother. So this is somebody that has nobody that would benefit from an inheritance, but it goes on and says this, yet there's no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. What he's saying is that there are some in this world, that there are some of y'all that are here in this room that are captive. You're so consumed by the desire for more. More of what? I'm not sure why. That's his point. So busy with this drive to succeed and to do and accomplish that you never have time to talk, not even to yourself and ask yourself the most basic question why am i doing this or more fundamentally who do i want to share this with one of the realities of life is that everything that we work for do you know the thing that makes it worth while being able to share it with somebody your favorite books or Movies or songs or conversations, even the bad times that you have. You don't just keep those things to yourselves, but you you want to find somebody to desperately share it with. Yeah, a guy from the church now, we're at breakfast this uh, past week and he told me about this uh, movie called Into the Wild where it's this guy who graduated from school, had this great job, lots of money, and he went on this pursuit of the life of his dreams, and he thought that the life of his dreams was being able to be by himself and to be free to do all that he want, wanted. So he sold all his stuff, gave away all his money, ditched his car, hitchhiked to Alaska, and thought that he had this great time, until he neared his death and dying of starvation. And the last thing that he wrote in his journal as he prepared to die was. I can't believe that I spent all of my time pursuing joy by myself. It's never going to be be found there. I desperately want somebody to share all of this with. We can be so consumed in trying to achieve and to gain things that we can actually be held captive and, uh, again, work towards our loneliness by, uh, uh, by trying to achieve a bunch of stuff. You can have the life of your dreams, but if there's nobody to share it with, then you'll find out that it's actually a, a nightmare. The question is, which one are you? But as you sit back and as you, you think, where would you identify on, on this list? Be one, maybe two, maybe all three. The most important thing is not how you get there. The most important thing is that we have to acknowledge that isolation is a real danger in all of our lives, regardless of if you're by yourself or if you're in the midst of a group of people. So verse 9 comes in, and his main point will be this, acknowledge isolation and then avoid isolation at all costs. Look here at verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm all alone? And although a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The goal of this book, it starts out and he just steps back. And this book is meant to answer the question, what gain do we have out of all of our work? We're all involved and we spend our life trying to work, but it seems kind of pointless because we work so hard and we don't get the goals that that we hope for. We work so hard to address the imperfections that remain in life, but we can't quite fix them the way that we want to. And even if we do fix them the way that they want to, things mess up. And so in verse 9, what we find is it's the very first time in this book where he says, Listen, there is something. There there can be rewarding work. Verse 9 says this, two are better than one. Why? Because they have a good reward for their toil. There's something better than a pause button here. There's something better than being able to stop life, take care of what you need to take care of, and then to come back in. And the thing that he says, the thing that's better Is community. The only rewarding work. That takes place here in this life. Is he saying comes in the context of relationship. Notice in verse 10 through 12. All the examples that he gives. Are negative ones. So he's like look. Here's why it's better to have somebody else alongside you. If you fall, they they can pick you up. If you're cold, they can keep you warm. If you're in a fight, they can come alongside and help you. He tends to talk about friendship and community, not in the the way that we think of it. When we think of friendship and we start to lay out the standards by which we choose our friends. What are the standards by which you, you choose your friends? What are the non negotiables in your life? Sense of humor? Shared interests? They can't be too socially awkward, extroverted. They make me feel good. All of these things, and this is why I intentionally used the words avoid isolation at all costs and not build a sense of community. Because when we tend to think of build a sense of community, we think of all of these things that we want to build the perfect friend. But do you know what? There is no perfect friend in a world that's plagued with constant imperfection. So the standard that he lays out is, look, look, here's the best that you can do. Here's what you should aim for. Surrounding yourselves with people that can help you navigate through the imperfections of life. What does that do? How does that change the way for those of us in here that aren't married? How does that change the way that you think of how you're going to pick your spouse? There's certain things that are important, but there are certain things that are absolutely vital. My wife and I got a chance to celebrate nine years um, this, this, this past week. And as we sat at lunch and just talked about life and talked about the things that we enjoyed and the things that we're grateful for, it's funny it's so funny how much my conversations changed with her 9 years later you know i think of year 1 and year 2 the the well in year 3 and year 4 things that things that, that 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 we complained about that we fought over that we were frustrated about all at times when kind of life went well And then do you know what takes place? Infertility happens. Adoptions fail. Loved ones die. Depression sets in. Friendships end. We see friends' marriages fall apart. And we get acquainted with all of these imperfections that exist in life. And then what takes place is there's this, there's this depth of relationship and friendship that builds having somebody else who, yeah, we may fight about interests that we don't share, but I'm confident and I'm grateful that when I was at my lowest place, you pulled me up. Yeah, we may fight about what we're going to do with our money, I remember when I felt isolated and all by myself and there was nobody else. You with it? That there's all of these things that become so much more important when you find yourself facing the imperfections in life. So his admonition here is that you would avoid isolation at all costs. That the best way for life to be managed is together with somebody else. Not just in a, well, it's me and God and we're good and God is my best friend. Absolutely. But even in a perfect world, God said that that was no good. The beautiful thing about this list is it doesn't only shape the way that we pick our friendships or spouses But do you know what it helps us see? It helps us see how you and I are to practice true friendship. So that no one would feel inadequate when it comes to relationship. Can you find somebody that is in a low place and pick them up? And if not, pick them up. Can you at least crawl down in the low place with them and make sure that their tears don't hit the floor? Can you find somebody that is cold and by themselves? And even if you don't know the right things to say, just commit to sit next to them so that at least they won't be cold. Can you find somebody? That's getting pummeled in a fight. And even if you can't fight. At least just hold them down. At least bite them or something. <laughs> can you do that? Yes. Listen. Then you can avoid isolation and you can help somebody else to do the same thing. There are imperfections that you can't fix in this world but one thing that you can do is you can avoid isolation here's the problem with that we are able and capable but often unwilling because you know what this comes at it's a benefit yeah but it, 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 it comes at a great cost It's going to cost you convenience. It's going to cost you weekends. It's going to cost you free time. It's going to cost you bruises. Walking into a fight that you could have avoided. And we've talked about the imperfections that exist in our world. But one thing that we can't fail to account for are the imperfections that exist inside of us. And these are the things that are the biggest obstacle to any real and true lasting sense of community. We're so set in our ways that we can even read this and know that our goal in this life is to avoid isolation at all costs. We can get great advice and still leave out of here and not do anything with it. So, so how do we really change? How do we really fight this real fight? How do we really avoid isolation at all costs when everything inside of us seems like it, it pursues isolation even though it's the worst thing for us? And this is the beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Is that before we go down our path. To do the things that God has called us to do. Do you know what we do? We accept divine intervention. We accept somebody else. Stepping in. And modeling for us. What this true friendship looks like. And not only modeling it for us. But changing us from the inside out and replacing this desire that we had for things with something better. Genesis 4, Cain envies his brother, is frustrated with him, and murders his brother. And as a result of that, do you know what God does? What God justly does is God says, you're going to wander. Prepare for isolation. You're gone. Your brother's blood is crying for justice. Hebrews 12, 24, it talks about what the Lord Jesus does. Who is an innocent man, much like Ab- Ab- Abel. He was unjustly murdered. But his blood cries out for something else. 1224 says this. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the word of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for justice in the midst of Cain's imperfection. Jesus' blood. Him dying on the cross. Do you know what it cries out for? Mercy. Mercy in the midst of our imperfection. It cries out not to send us away to face the isolation that we earn, but it cries out for him to bring us near, to bring us close. And once we are brought close to God, we're reminded that Jesus doesn't just forgive our debt, but he lavishes on us the riches of God's grace. He gives us a sense of completeness that could and should put an end to all of our striving for more, striving for validation in the things that we have, striving for admiration by being at the head of the class. He frees us from that. And so now what takes place is even if we feel cast away, cast away by friends or find ourselves as those that feel cast away by the church, dealing with with church hurt. It doesn't have to make us bitter, but we can be reminded that though the rest of the earth would cast us away, Jesus didn't. He came after me. For those of us that were driven by envy and just wanting to get more, the gospel reminds us, Jesus reminds us, That we have everything that we want because of what he's provided for us. So we don't have to work because of envy, but we can work to build up. We we can work. The motivation for work comes with being able to provide for the needs of so many other that are desperate. The gospel reminds us that we were created for community. And as we look to the life of Jesus and constantly pray that God would give us his heart. It reorients our pursuits. It changes our posture. It helps us see that the inconveniences that we might have to incur. To build community or to help somebody out is not the end of the world. The inconveniences that we may have to incur are worth it because they're nothing compared to the inconveniences that our Savior endured to come back and to get us. And so in light of this intervention, in light of us submitting our lives to the Lord, here's what it looks like. Just three quick things that I want to talk through that will help us uh, avoid isolation at all costs. I broke it down as a acronym. It's kind of corny, but it'll help us to remember. Um, And that's ACT. Here's the first one. Apologize. There's so many of us that are in this room right now who may find ourselves isolated, not because there's nobody around, but because... We've pushed away people that have tried to help us with our pride, with our frustrations. We've said things that have hurt them. And one of the things that we can do is even as we think through that right now, people that we know that we've treated wrongly, one of the quick ways to repair relationships is to just talk to them right now and to say, I'm sorry. To work through, to say isolation is not something that I want to take place. For Christians and people that constantly talk about the forgiveness of God and all of what he went through. Sometimes it's so hard for us to just say those words, I'm sorry, which have the potential to repair lots of broken relationships. Don't forfeit people that God has placed in your life because you've pushed them away and you've been too proud to admit it and apologize. Two, commit. 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 In Genesis 2, when God is trying to take care of Adam's isolation. He doesn't just give him a companion. He gives him a commitment. He gives him a marriage. He gives him a companionship that takes place in the confines of the words, I will not leave you. Why? Because people are not perfect. Your friendships, your relationships, your church Will not be perfect. And one of God's great gifts. Is this concept of commitment. Do you know why? Commitment. Is God's great grace. To help us. Judge the benefit. Of a relationship. Not by the. uh, Initial yield. What comes right off of the bat. But by the eventual yield. Listen. Trees take a long time to to grow, and if you are not committed to do the ordinary, mundane, boring work of putting a seed in the ground and watering it for 15 years, you're never going to get a tree. You can find a problem with this soil and with that soil and pick that seed up and move it and feel like I'm free from commitment, and you are, but you're never going to get the type of relationship that God outlines here. Commitment is not a burden. It's not a ball and chain. It's God's great grace to provide us with what it is that we need. And so what that looks like, and we say it all the time, is for those of us that are Christian, it's joining a church and committing to a group of people that, Or imperfect. But it's providing a commitment to this group that says, hey, my goal is that with this group of people that I commit to, I want to spend my time making sure that I lift folks up where they need help. That I keep folks warm where where they're cold. And that I help fight battles that I didn't start. But it's a commitment none the less. And here's the last one. T trailblaze or initiate. Every relationship starts off with somebody initiating. No relationship starts off with two people at the same time saying, I want to be friends. It doesn't work like that. Somebody has to take The first step. And so one of the great ironies, especially in church life, in any crowd that you have, is you can have a bunch of folks in a room who all say the exact same thing. I'm lonely and I wish that I just had somebody that I I could be friends with. I'm really having trouble connecting. And what would be a great travesty is if there's a room full of folks and everybody said the same thing, but nobody took that first step trailblaze. Every relationship starts off with somebody initiating. And it's not just about our strengths. One of the best ways that you can initiate is in vulnerability. C.S. Lewis says this, friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, what? You two? I thought I was the only one. Somebody's got to speak first. Be willing to create an avenue or environment where somebody else can respond and say, me too. Celebrate, don't compete. This falls under that last T. Rejoice in the work that God is doing with somebody else and celebrate that. That's one of the greatest guards from envy is celebration when God does something great in the life of somebody else. And pray. J.C. Ryle says this, He loves me best who loves me in his prayers. Prayer may feel like a cop-out when it comes to building relationships, but it'll only feel like a cop-out if you feel like God really doesn't answer prayers. But if you really believe that God does, one of the greatest and first steps that we can do is to actually pray for people that we may never get a chance to talk to. If you're a part of this church, one of the great encouragements can come from routinely praying through the list of folks that are a part of this church. Why? So that they're always on your mind and on your heart and you can be reminded and prompted to act, to initiate. And I think that if we do all of that, that we create the type of a place where we provide care for those that are here, and we also prepare a church for people that are near, that may feel isolated or on the outskirts. Your biggest fight in the world that we live in is not repairing the imperfections that exist. God's going to do that. His control is not meant to stop us from working. It's meant to stop us from worrying. We still work. We just don't worry. Your job or your task is to avoid isolation at all costs. And if you find yourself as somebody that has great strength right now, then take it a step further and help somebody else avoid that same isolation that will uh, eventually be their downfall. Let's pray. Father, um, we're thankful for your word. I pray uh, that you would help us to, to, to look at your son and to remember that our lives are best lived when they live for somebody else. Um, and help us to be a church that uh, routinely uh, does all that we can to make sure that tears fall freely, but they never hit the floor. God, give us the grace. Uh, to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray.